Hey guys, producer Genevieve here to give you a quick heads up. Due to the excessive dust and cobwebs that built up in our recording equipment over the podcast's extended hiatus, the audio quality on today's episode is a little rougher than usual. Hopefully you can grit your teeth and bear it because there's a lot of great podcasts beneath the fuzz, and I promise we'll fix a problem before the next episode. Thanks and enjoy. This is the Dissolve Podcast, episode 28, Adam Carolla Doesn't Deserve My Fart Noise Edition. As it was in the before time, I'm your host, Tasha Robinson, senior editor at the Dissolve. It's been a long wait for this podcast, so let's take a moment to bask in its return. (sighs) Okay, we're done. On to the next thing. The 2014 Oscar nominations feature a number of films with two things in common, a basis in history and a reputation for playing fast and loose with history. We'll look at some of the individual controversies and debate the notion and the value of the based on a true story film. Then we welcome our new news editor, Rachel Handler, to the podcast for a discussion of Desiree Akhavan's feature debut, Appropriate Behavior, which raises some interesting questions about women-led comedies in 2015. We'll celebrate our comeback with a quiz about comebacks, then pull the mothballs out of the buzzer for a round of 30 seconds to sell. Stay tuned. Once we were done wailing and gnashing our teeth about what did and didn't turn up on the Oscar ballot this year, we noticed some commonalities. Four of the eight Best Picture nominees this year are based in history and biography, and three of those four have come under significant fire for their lack of fidelity to history. Based on a true story, films can be contentious since they so often focus on familiar beats and broad emotions rather than messy truth. But this year's nominees seem more contentious than most, with Selma taking flack for misportraying President Johnson's dealings with Martin Luther King and civil rights, the imitation game accused of downplaying Alan Turing's homosexuality and overplaying his possible autism, and American Sniper accused of being a largely invented and self-serving account. Here to talk about fact, fiction, and what makes good filmmaking are... Uh, Scott Tobias. And... Keith Phelps. Okay, guys, all of these films have, have been so much in think pieces uh, recently. And in fact, as we sat down to record this, uh, one of our favorite podcasts, Pop Culture Happy Hour, did a segment about pretty much the exact same thing. It kind of seems like everybody's talking about this right now. How much do these particular debates interest you in relationship to the actual films? Um, I think it's interesting in providing background uh, to them. I think it's certainly... Uh, um, I, you know, it's, it's good to see these films being talked about in process. I, I wonder if, if we're bringing, if, if it's a matter of just sort of like they're not true enough to fact uh, is probably the wrong uh, approach to take to the this, this discussion, which isn't to say that my feelings is that a film could just say whatever it wants when portraying a true story, but uh, I, th- I think you, the sort of like the, the knee-jerk fact-checking that's going on is perhaps the, is not necessarily the best judge of a film's quality. Yeah, that's that's my opinion too. I'm very very dubious of of you know experts kind of coming coming in and picking apart movies. You know about this whole kind of culture of like, you know, that the Harvard the social network is not like the Harvard I went to, or or you know the the physics and gravity are not you know the way. But not the physics I grew up with. <laughs> not the physics I grew up with. I, I mean, I, I think the physics stuff is kind of fun in a way, but I think it's sort of an interesting contrast because because like yeah, you can know that the physics physics aren't right and still. I don't necessarily that's that's going to be a judgment of the the, the quality of a film like Gravity. Whereas I feel like we're bringing the the sort of uh, um, you know factual veracity of these films as sort of like a judge of their quality. Yeah, no, I know, right. right? No, it's it's not. I, I you have to deal with this these films, I guess, on a on a case by case basis. But I am one to allow 
filmmakers a great deal of latitude with how they deal with history because um, it just really is for one I mean I think uh, A.O. Scott was making this point on Twitter it's like you know the, the, these films are they're historical fiction basically um, you know they're not you know and it's impossible to 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 even a film that is devoted to being as scrupulous as possible is you can't be you weren't there <laughs> you know there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of invention so you really have to kind of like you know if you're going to examine these things you have to to, to look at these on a, on a sort of a case by case basis and, and try to come to terms with why certain choices were made um, the the other thing I would say too is, and this is a, I think a mistake that a lot of historians and, and political minded people make is that a movie is not just a sequence of events you know it's not just the story uh, there's a lot of other things that go into a movie that make it that make it art that make it different I mean you know I think Zero Dark Thirty to me is that is kind of a primary example I mean you have a lot of people who are very politically committed to the notion that that uh, that torture had no you know bearing on uh, the search to find Osama bin Laden it's something it's an important point and and I and I understand the stakes of it but at the same time you know to to, to label that film as pro torture as a lot of people were doing and a lot of people were comparing Catherine Bigelow to to Lenny Riefenstahl I think that's a complete misread of the film's tone and of and of where the film lands us at the at the very end so um, I feel like there's a little there's an indelicacy and a lack of understanding of art on the part of historians when, when trying to address these things. Okay, this, there's a whole lot in there to unpack. I think that, uh, for me at least, something like Gravity and something like Selma are, are on completely different planets from each other, almost literally. The, the idea that you, the physics of a movie has to be completely accurate, I think, is saying that uh, fiction is not allowed to exist in films. And, I mean, it's like getting into inter Interstellar for not dealing with black holes right. It's just basically uh, like misunderstanding what what a film is trying to do um, and trying to hold it to a scientific standard that isn't necessarily present in fiction and doesn't need to be. But when you're talking about a historical film, yes, people weren't necessarily there. All of these conversations weren't recorded. You cannot present history with complete and total veracity. But I think that's a very different thing from actively ignoring a lot of history that we know to be true um, and like completely rewriting history in order to to promulgate an agenda. And I that's where I run into trouble with a lot of historical fiction is if you can see what the agenda is and the agenda is something that you disagree with, um, often the agenda is just uh, create a better story. And I would like to say that I'm in favor of creating a better story, but when creating a better story involves doing a disservice to, to actual living people, um, especially when it's historical fiction about relatively recent fiction, and those people are still here to say, what you're talking about, that's that's not my story. That's not who I am. You have, in, I mean, in Argo, you have the case of the, the guy who's portrayed as a coward, basically just so other people can look better. And, and that guy's still around. I mean, <laughs> how does it feel to be the guy who is basically made out to be a, like a, a craven idiot just so you can make the story of the protagonist better? And I feel like there's a lot of that going on in the imitation game as well. A, a lot of history has been very radically rewritten to try to make that a better story. But is it a better story if it has no bearing on reality anymore and it's just another fiction? At that point, I, like I have no problem with a fictional story, but at the point where reality, you, you're, you're saying, well, this is reality, this is a real story, this has real historical value, this is a, the story of a real person that we should be impressed with, except that we made 50% of it up, 
Where's the value in that story? That's my big question with historical films. Well, I think if, if the story works, I mean, the example I would go to would be Foxcatcher, which Bennett Miller has n- never made any sort of, um, never made any claims that he wasn't compressing, expanding, fit, making it all fit a narrative uh, to make a better film. I mean, that's, an example with that is, you know, in real life, that story ends with a big police standoff that was national news, and that's not even in the film at all, and that's that's a choice he made, not because he was trying to hide up the fact that Dupont, you know, was was uh, you know had a police standoff, but because it, it wasn't didn't fit the story he was trying to tell, and I think he was trying to find the the truth of that um, uh, the truth of that story as he saw it. And that's what a film, and that's what fiction does. Now I know what you're saying though, because you can see where where people the, the, there's been a very dramatic sort of Mark Schultz, one of the subjects of the film, <laughs> endorsing and then uh, and then going on a Twitter rampage about how much he hated the film, and then reversing course and calling it a masterpiece this last weekend. So obviously, oh, if you if you are, yeah if you are a real person whose story this is, or in the case of LBJ and Selma, if you are people who are attached in some way to the uh, historical legacy, obviously it's going to be a lot more personal. So it's easier for us to say that but I still think we're right well okay so here's the thing I understand Mark Schultz actually is a great poster boy for why I may be wrong about letting people letting the people who were there judge their position in history (laughs) right Uh, so uh, I'm I'm willing to dial back on that a little bit but Foxcatcher is a good example because I, I have no problem with Bennett Miller leaving off the the a police standoff at the end and deciding that's not the story he wants to tell. But the story that he does want to tell is a story about these two brothers and their and their conflicts and their jealousy, all of which he invented. They The two of them were never at Foxcatcher at the same time. They had completely different relationships with, uh, with DuPont and with Foxcatcher, the place. Just so much of that is made up. If if the story that you want to tell is a story that is not based, that's only based in reality, and that you kind of borrow the guy's names and and their wrestling careers, then at what point? Why do you need a historical background for that story? I mean, in some ways, you know, maybe you're better off writing about um, you know Citizen Kane than Randolph Hearst, you know. Uh, but uh, um, but um, I, I don't know. I, I think in this is the case where this is the case where he, per, he acquired the rights to this story, and that's that's the story he he you know he based it on, even if it, it veers fairly far from what actually happened. Yeah, I, I'm again, I'm I'm inclined to to give artists a, a tremendous amount of latitude um, um though i'm curious tasha when do you when, at what point do you sort of apply this this knowledge i mean you, you presumably you saw the imitation game or fox catcher or selma you know relatively you know in the dark about certain elements that would come out later i mean do, the, do these films just suddenly kind of diminish in, in value when 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 you're faced with these new facts or they do actually and that's not necessarily something i'm entirely proud of i feel like this ties pretty closely into the conversation we're always having about book adaptations and whether uh movies fidelity to the book or ability to bring out uh, elements that were interesting in the book or whether it cares at all about the book and what the book accomplishes uh, this is conversation that we're constantly having and i think it do does come down to a case-by-case basis but i also think that there is something to be said for 
particularly when you're adapting a bestseller, paying some attention to what made that book a bestseller, as opposed to using the name as an excuse to to go off on a random track. I'm not sure you can compare them though, because that's an artistic. Uh, that, that's that would be a purely artistic. That's fiction uh, to fiction. Fiction to fiction versus versus uh, uh, fact to fiction. You know? I I don't think they're the same, but I think there's a comparison to be made there. Yeah. Oh, let me challenge you on Selma specifically. There are two sort of separate charges as I see it against the film. I think we can, it's best to kind of deal with them separately. One is that uh, LBJ was in fact, you know, a collaborator, a sympathetic, sympathetic to Martin Luther King's cause. And he's been paint, painted poorly. It's so, some, the villain is of the piece is how uh, he's been described. The other charge is that he had um, some knowledge or participation in a surveillance uh, campaign led by J. Edgar Hoover into uh, Martha Luther King's private life. So I'm curious about what you feel about those charges and how, how they how they uh, reflect or revise your opinion on Selma. Well, the Hoover thing, um, I mean, that didn't seem to be heavily underlined in the film to the degree that it's there. I, like, I, I guess I just don't have a problem with that. Like, politically, it, it seems to me that president should be keeping really close tabs on somebody who's trying to change the politics of the nation. Um, if he was actually involved in trying to smear him, particularly with his wife, that's that's a, a pretty significant charge. But again, it's very far from the, the main point of Selma. The whole accusation of LBJ being portrayed unfairly in that film may be accurate. It may be a matter of perspective. Uh, you know, Martin Luther King's perspective may certainly have been that he was less cooperative than his aides felt that he was being. And that may, given that this, these charges are coming from people who worked with LBJ, that seems to me an awful, an awful lot like a matter of, well, we felt we were doing our best at the time, versus what the people who were actually on the front lines might have been feeling, which was a very different thing. That's very different from, for instance, saying that Alan Turing made that machine by hand and like designed it from scratch and made it made it with his own two hands, none of which is remotely true. So it's a difference. If it's a difference of perspective, that's about telling the story that you're out to tell. If it's a difference of completely altering history, for as I say, for an agenda, that's a very different thing. I, I do want to say, anybody that looks at Selma and their primary reaction is the the four or five minutes dealing with a white politician completely obviate the film. <laughs> I have no words for this. Well, Here, here's the thing: I wish we could. Ha I wish we could get to the point where where that was obviously wasn't the case because there are things I, I you know if there were a a sort of organized discussion going on about what Selma, you know, about, about the, the, the history of Selma. Like, I, I find, you know, to the degree which it does, but the, the suggestion that LBJ acquiesced to, to Hoover's uh, surveillance, uh, I find uh, I find it a troubling suggestion. Uh, but to me, I mean, I, I could be 100% offended by that suggestion and still think it's a great movie, you know, and, and not in any way invalidated by it, you know. it's it's uh, it, But it's, it's an either-or proposition when this discussion enters the public sphere. Uh, there's been a lot written lately about specifically that, about the value of a good story, how the value of a good story overrules anything else. So this is basically what I want to ask. If a, if a historical film isn't historical, what is the value of a good story labeled as a historical uh, film? I mean, what can we learn from something that's that's got an educational component but that's giving out wrong information? What is the value of a story that is pretending to be something it's not. Let me say this. I'm pretty sure that if you go and look at the history books 
the the there's a there's there the play is Henry the Fourth parts one and two Henry the Fifth etc etc <laughs> they're not going to match up very well but and it did it with Julius Caesar but but I think you, know, you can read some read or see Julius Caesar and it's as smart as about how politics worked in Elizabethan England as it is about how politics work today and presumably uh, no doubt it has insights into how politics worked in, in Julius Caesar's time too uh, there are larger truths than the truth and in that case and, and uh, I, you know obviously but Shakespeare did this as a terrible ultimately <laughs> not that great a defense but I, I think I'm going to go to that extreme and, and, and maybe we can walk back a little from there yeah I mean I, I would say to not throw out the, the baby with a historical inaccuracy bathwater uh, I mean you know I mean the case of, of Selma uh, you know, I'm actually a little bit. I don't want to get into it too much, but I feel it's very surprising to me that you're not as alarmed by the part by the accusation against the phone, which to me is way more alarming. Which is the the, the Hoover stuff. I actually think it's a pretty significant part of the movie that you're somehow downplaying. But uh, to be fair, I, I don't know as much about the history of that as okay. I do about the is, history a, of the LDA. I haven't it's, read nearly as much there are about it. Two extremely important scenes in the movie that deal with it, and I think I think I think it's something worth talking about. But but in any case. And I also feel like the the uh, you know on the other the other side of it the the LBJ people are are being big babies uh, about it <laughs> frankly and that and that uh, and that I think he's I actually feel that that's a particularly as a fair and sympathetic portrayal of LBJ and and a, a very smart uh, the the thing I like most about the movie is is the. Uh, you know the, that relationship between activism and politics. I think that's the, what gives the film its 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 primary interest for me. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I sort of wrestle with these things, but I think we need to kind of examine you know what the need, what a drama's needs are, what its relationship specifically to bits of history are, and I think and again, I mean, I think Tasha, the difference between you and I is I just I just allow for a whole lot more latitude, and I think Keith, Keith does as well uh, to to because they are ultimately. You know, feature films—they're fiction. They're they're historical fiction, and so and so we we allow for a certain amount of latitude if the if the film is is you know enriching in other ways. You know, the, the, these historical details, you know, unless they're truly egregious and, and appalling, and sometimes in in the case of American Sniper, which leaves out some some bits of history, you know, that that can be a little bit risible as well. But you, you kind of have to examine it in a nuanced way, and I feel like a lot of the discussion now has been about. Um, you know, condemning these films, you know, on the whole uh, for, for details and not without really kind of a, getting a good sense of, of a film overall. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I do think that these things are being examined more and more and more as there are more and more film websites, there's more and more think pieces, there's more and more of this attention to detail simply to have something to talk about. I think uh, the attitude is getting more and more dismissive, and I do think that that's a problem. But we really should aim in the direction of wrapping up. I don't think this is a uh, question that we're necessarily going to resolve here and now on the table. Where we are going to resolve it is in the biogra biography of my life, where the <laughs> two of you will be combined into one character, played by a sexy lady. Nathan will be here, and uh, probably like firemen will come storming in and tell us the building's on fire at the end of this discussion, which I will win because that's part of my character arc. Until that biography hits theaters, thank you guys for talking this out and we'll continue to argue. Thanks, Tasha. Desiree Akhavan just released her debut film, the indie comedy Appropriate Behavior, which she wrote, directed, and stars in. Her protagonist, Shireen, has some major autobiographical elements. She's the bisexual, closeted adult daughter of Iranian immigrants, and she's dealing with a major breakup very poorly. 
I recently interviewed Akavan about her film and brought up the comparisons that have been made to Lena Dunham's Girls and the film's similarities to Obvious Child and Francis Ha, but Akavan is dubious about the comparisons. She says this isn't a new wave of film. It's just the natural outgrowth of women getting to tell the kinds of stories about themselves that men have gotten to tell for years. Here to talk about the film, the comparisons, and the comedy of 20-something clutchiness are Genevieve Kasky and our new news editor, Rachel Handler. So guys, are you going to bag me up on this or am I completely off base? I, I felt a little odd uh, in the in the interview when she said, no, this my film has nothing to do with these films that, that to me it closely resembled. Did you guys see the resemblance or am I seeing something that's not there? I mean, there's a similarity in that they're all dealing with the same general demographic like you know you're 20 something not particularly well off uh you know woman living in modern day new york and that they all are kind of approached in the same low-key indie way which i think akvan also mentioned in the uh interview with her as um a lot of it's just kind of a matter of scale like it's it's a lot easier to do these kind of small personal stories as a, a first film or working on an indie level than something you know that might be a little more genre or fiction based um, but I think Francis Ha, Obvious Child, and uh, Appropriate Behavior all have like very distinctive tones, and that each, more importantly, each deals with a distinctive character rather than you know a similar archetype. And I think that's what I see as their connective tissue more than the actual content of the films. No, I completely agree. I think we we tend to make false equivalents of things that have a couple of things in common, like Genevieve just said, just because they're about women, and that's sort of, we sort of look at it. I mean, not us, the three of us, but I think people sort of look at it as women as if they're like a minority when and actually they're half the population. So I or think, a slight majority, depending yeah. on what <laughs> majority majority most of the time. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's it's a little bit unfair to these filmmakers and it's unfair to sort of women in general to sort of just lump us all together just because we're all, you know, we're, we're all writing about similar things or just writing about being women, really. And that's something like, like Desiree said that we've all been, that men have been allowed to do for a really long time but I think you know no one's comparing everyone's comparing girls in Broad City but in my mind they're so different they're Mm -hmm. completely different in tone they're Mm -hmm. completely different in subject the New Yorks that they inhabit are very different I think too Um, but people are always pitting them against each other and I think it's just it's very problematic and I I agree that I think there are a couple of things I can see that these movies have in common but for the most part I I think they were incredibly different I agree especially in tone yeah I I also think they're part of a a bigger wave that is not based on gender but of uh, setting which is the kind of uh, Brooklyn indie set comedy Mm -hmm. which we are just flooded with right now in the all the films we mentioned as well as you know broad city and girls kind of fall into that wave as well and again i think that's just a matter of you know we're talking mostly about young filmmakers who are doing if not their first project you know one of their first projects and it might be easier to uh you know actually film something that is in you know where you live and dealing with people you know and places you know I mean, to speak to Rachel's point about doing a disservice to these films by creating false equivalencies, I think we're also doing a disservice to them by claiming that they're all radically different because they're women, because they're films about women and we want to to not be stereotyping. I mean, to me, these films are all films specifically about 
20-somethings in urban settings who are having trouble like negotiating just what I see as fairly basic uh, concepts of life. And that's probably some of that is coming from my age. But I find myself resisting to a certain degree these stories that are about uh, women who lack basic competency. And to be fair, I resist to those stories about men as well. The, the man-child who still behaves like he's 15 and doesn't understand why the world expects otherwise out of him is one of my least favorite stories in You must film. have been just a very graceful, elegant 20-something <laughs> because, I just, because I watch these with just like cringing recognition, you know, having just recently exited my, my 20s, uh, you know, maybe it's just a matter of proximity. It may be a matter of proximity and it may be a matter of, I mean, I would rather kind of rather watch a, like a 40 screwball comedy where, where every, all of the banter is tight and, and everybody is fiercely intelligent. And part of that is not a lack of recognition. It's uh, it's just a discomfort. It's it's being mm-hmm. a little uncomfortable with discomfort comedy, and so much of the comedy of these all of these films for me is caught up in. I am incapable of living life in a reasonable or rational fashion. I, I find myself, you know, I'm as embarrassed for Desiree Akhavan as I'm embarrassed for Seth Rogen and Knocked Up. I sympathize with, with Akhavan more, and, and I find her more interesting because that's such a specific character. Mm-hmm. But I, it sounds like I'm alone in this. Well, and, I, and I do recognize that it's a matter of taste. So that's part of what I wanted to get at in this conversation. Right. Uh, Rachel, did you feel the way Genevieve does? Do you empathize with these No, characters? I completely agree. I mean, for me, it's, it's kind of I watch it and I don't feel like they're incompetent. It's more that I feel like they're sort of growing and figuring out their shit. And <laughs> as someone who's doing that, I look at that and it's almost comforting. It's, it's the mm-hmm. opposite of discomfort. I feel both empathetic and I feel, you know, comforted that all the crazy shit that I did in my early 20s wasn't that bad, considering. <laughs> it's, it's the same reason I watch MTV True Life. So I'm like, well, at least <laughs> yeah. I'm not as bad as that person, exactly. you know? Um, no, that, I'm, I'm being glib. That's, uh, but... but Going back to appropriate behavior, which um, I, I don't think I liked quite as much as, as you, Tasha, although I did like it, but you presented it to me with a comparison to two of my favorite movies of the last uh, couple years, Francis Ha and Obvious Child. So, you know, that you may have set a, a set bar. Too high. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I did like it a lot, and I did admire it, you know, if we're talking about ways that it actually is genuinely different in how it engaged with uh, sex and sexuality, mm-hmm. because both of those other two films, Francis Ha and Obvious Child, like, sex was a part of it but it was a very kind of a very uh chaste and i mean obvious child is basically a rom-com like they have sex and like there's fart jokes during sex or whatever but it's like a lot of jumping on the bed yeah in underwear which i found very cute yeah yeah (laughs) and and kind of same with francis ha like it's it's all kind of presented as a a sidebar whereas appropriate behavior it was you know the the sex was a part of her journey Mm -hmm. and i do think that that is something that we see less of from uh, women filmmakers particularly women filmmakers who put themselves in front of the camera um and that is something that i hope we are seeing a, a sea change as as far as that goes well let me ask you this rachel i because one of the things that you said that i most agree with is that we're doing these this films a disservice by pitting them against each other specifically mm-hmm. and that was something that akavan said in her interview that that interested me like i think that we can recognize commonalities without making these films compete especially making them compete in a very small marketplace mm-hmm. and she obviously resists the comparison in part 
apart because it's being thrown at her as though Frances Ha exists so your film doesn't need to exist, which mm-hmm. I think is a very, very mm-hmm. different question. I think we can recognize that they're they're similar. How do you go about comparing, like even if not these films, if you don't see a similarity in them, other films that you do see similarities in, how do you compare and contrast them critically without pitting them against each other and making it into a horse race? I think... If by saying, you know, these are women's movies about women in their 20s, that's sort of contributing to the problem of like, this is a special representation or this is a test case. Um, I think just by recognizing, okay, this was made by a woman, that's fantastic. This was written and directed and started by a woman, that's, that's great. But then moving on, let's just evaluate it as a movie or as an indie movie or as, you know, let's say um, Francis Howell, let's, let's look at Greta Gerwig's movies, you know, mm-hmm. compare it against those movies. I think we can just slice it different ways and start to look at it from different points of view versus just this is a woman's movie or this is a, yeah. directed by a woman. Plus, also worth bringing up that Frances Ha is not actually directed by right. a woman. It's, it's right. a Noah movie, although Greta Gerwig did have a, a hand in the screenplay. Yeah. So, so, you know, we're including it in there. Now, I think when we're talking about these comparisons and this risk of tokenism, for, for lack of a better word, I think it's worth knowing that, like, this is kind of born of enthusiasm and advocacy on the parts of these films. Like, it's not coming from a place of putting these movies in the place where they belong. It's coming from a place of, like, I really like this movie. I want more people to see this movie. Because I bet if I walked outside this office right now and asked 10 people if they'd heard of Obvious Child or Appropriate Behavior, I'd get, I'd be lucky to get one or two yeses. Although so, we have handed Obvious, like, I've personally handed Obvious uh, Child like, three people in yeah, this office. I, I did it just this weekend. I lent out my Blu-ray just this weekend of Obvious Child. Anyway, so I think when we kind of talk about these movies and talk them up and present them as something special or worthy of attention, it's born of a desire to create that discussion, to create this discussion mm-hmm. that we're having right now. Um, and I think that needs to be acknowledged when you know we're lumping these movies together, is that we're, cre- we're trying to create a discussion and that would hopefully result in more films like this and right. more unique visions. Yeah, to be fair, I, I like I may be sounding too analytical or too category categorization categorization categorically inclined. <laughs> I'm, I may be trying to categorize or pigeonhole this movie too much when what I should be saying is that I really enjoyed it a mm-hmm. lot. I, I found it really funny, and I'm saying that as somebody who wasn't nearly as much of a fan of either either Obvious Child or uh, Francis Haas. You were, I, to some degree, and again, this is this is my age, this is my remove, but I. I associated both of those films a little too much with Rent and (laughs) how the way my feelings towards that movie changed or the feelings towards the play really changed over time as I got further and further away from these like angry 20 year old somethings who feel entitled to a living from the world because they're making art. I I felt a little bit the same way about these characters. But I think all all three of these characters we're talking about and all three of these movies have a lot more self-awareness than that. I I think, Mm -hmm. you, you know, they're... Well, with the exception of maybe Frances Ha, you know, in Hannah Horvath, if we want to talk about girls, I think both uh, Jenny Slate's character in Obvious Child and Desiree Ackman's character in Appropriate Behavior are kind of aware that they're fumbling towards some sort of knowledge, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, I don't think they necessarily think they have all the answers. Like, the whole movie is about them coming to grips with the fact that they don't have the answers. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, and with Jenny Slate in particular, so much of that is is in the comedy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I again, I like that movie less than you, in part because I found the comedy so crude. But I also... To that, I'd like to say... Is that a raspberry or a fart joke? It was a fart noise. It really should be a fart joke. 
but I really loved the, the fact that the comedy was part of the story and that her like being a comedian was part of the story because that again that's a film we've seen a million times with men mm-hmm. and I really liked having her her distinct voice in there I mean I think all of these films are distinctive while having commonalities and I think that's that's part of why they can all exist together and what makes them interesting mm-hmm. but We've seen over and over with with movies. Uh, pretty much, uh, the the recent age kind of bridesmaids was, you know, yet another uh, flag that everybody rallied around to ask whether uh, well whether women are funny, you know. And every new woman led movie has to be this this test case: are women funny? Can women led comedies have a future? What do we do to get past that? <laughs> I mean, is it uh, just talking about them individually? Does that? Well, I think help? I think conversations like this are yeah. are you know definitely a part of it, and part of it is just market saturation. You know, at this point, we're lo- we're lucky if we get one a year. We got you know the heat a couple years ago. I can't really think of any like big female led comedies from. 2014 that that you know were causing those sorts of discussions i mean tammy was supposed to be that and then it it kind of ended up being just kind of another sloppy melissa mccarthy comedy yeah which makes me very sad because she's so funny and i i really thought that was going to be you know she and her husband were making that movie i wanted that movie to be as distinctive and specific uh, about a a distinctive specific character as all of these other films we're talking about were and i think like last year obvious child kind of got brought into that discussion just by lack of by virtue of lack of a Hollywood uh, you know female driven comedy and because Obvious Child was so good but sorry Tasha it was (laughs) (laughs) you know different strokes for different folks I we're all allowed to have our own our own tastes and opinions and the fact that there are more of these films and they can play to different tastes and opinions Mm -hmm. is a victory in and of itself Mm -hmm. and and that's like what I'm trying to get around to saying is like you know we need to get more than one of these a year we need to get more than one you know discussable quality female driven vision a year it, you know on a broad scale and i, I mean that broad is in size <laughs> not <laughs> you can say chick it's yeah okay. yeah um i my question is i mean are people still asking can women be funny or i feel like the conversation has now become are we still asking if women can be funny you know i think the thing pieces have sort of circled back on themselves a little bit oh i hope so <laughs> <laughs> i mean i feel like if someone straight up wrote a think piece can women be funny they would just be beaten to death yeah and, 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 and i think it's a <laughs> there's perhaps a generational thing there too i think uh you know our generation is a, a lot more like apt to see the ridiculousness of that statement having right. having come up with lots of very visible funny f- women um whereas you, perhaps, tina fey and amy Poehler. exactly yeah. uh whereas perhaps you know my mom's generation might you know be more susceptible to hearing that argument Mm -hmm. and and thinking that it is has any value whatsoever right right. (laughs) i mean i don't think anybody ever presented as an argument except jerry lewis yeah like I, i don't think most people who raise that question believe that the answer is no i think that they think that they're being controversial yeah. and and trying to strike an opinion that'll cause mm-hmm. a lot of discussion i just think the discussion is boring and, and probably yeah. should be over yeah or like or adam carolla that's what the person i always think of yeah. i hate adam carolla <laughs> fart noise <laughs> he doesn't deserve my fart noise <laughs> we would deign to give him a fart noise
Well, next time we get together, we'll evaluate who else does and does not deserve our fart noises. <laughs> but until then, thank you guys for talking this out with me. Uh, let's uh, let's hope we get more of these movies that we can actually discuss together. But let's let's hope we get a uh, podcast segment, uh, another podcast segment where we all get to uh, sit together and talk about female stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, more than once a year. I'm, I'm really enjoying the female Us stuff. Females, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really enjoying the female stuff uh, column, and uh, clearly, it's clearly it's going to strike a blow for all of us to have uh, a room of our own more than like once a year (laughs) (laughs) thanks guys thanks thank you well we've been a long time gone on this podcast so that's why we've got this game which i'm calling been a long time gone this quiz is entirely related to movie sequels that came a very long time after the original films and i tweaked the point system a little bit um this is going to be a multiple choice quiz however with each uh question there's also an additional trivia question so you can get up to two points per question one by getting it right in the first place and one by uh, getting the additional probably harder question right uh you're all giving me those quizzical looks that say this is already complicated and we haven't even started but it'll be very simple once we've actually hit the road it's been a long time gone let's get back to where we were all right uh here to play this game with me are nathan rabin (coughs) scott tobias and keith phipps all right guys are you ready to buzz in um, is this about the a, Scott Tobias rule? This is a multiple choice thing. Why is it also a buzzer thing? Because uh, you have the opportunity to buzz in to tell me which multiple choice question is correct. Um, and then whoever actually gets it right will have the first free throw at the harder extra point. But do we have to wait for all of the uh, multiple choice things to happen to before we can buzz in? We have seen uh, over and over again that uh, you can buzz in if you know the answer, but it is often not a good idea. Key fips. <laughs> no, if you if uh, you decide that A is the correct answer, you feel free to buzz in the second I am done with A. Uh, you may find yourself regretting it, but then again, you may find yourself walking away with a victory. Okay. Number one, which of these films holds the record for the longest gap between a feature and its sequel? A, the 1925 film The Freshman. B, I'm going to say The Freshman. Okay, the Scott Tobias rule is in effect. Uh, Nathan has already lost a point, and we have just seen why you don't buzz in until you've heard all the options. All right, Keith and Scott, it's down to the two of you. Uh, A, the 1925 film The Freshman. B, The X from Outer Space. C, This Night I'll Possess Your Corpse. D, The Odd Couple. Or E, Bambi. Scott Tobias. I'm going to go with Bambi. You are correct. 63 years between Bambi and Bambi 2. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Uh, either of you can potentially get this, but Scott has first shot at it. It's funny, too, how the, the Bambi 2 is so beloved. It's eclipsed all memory of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> this is... All right. The Scott Bambi's Tobias very rule, old in this. The Scott Tobias rule is in effect for the multiple choice, but not for the extra points. So okay. you can feel free to take any kind of free throw shot you want. Is this all the multiple choice? Or no, gonna, this okay. is just a straight-up trivia question. Whew. All right. Bring it. All right. For an extra point, apart from the fact that Bambi 2 was a VOD release, there's another reason related to its content that might keep it from fully qualifying for the best for the uh, longest sequel title. Do you know what that reason is? That might keep it from qualifying for the There's a reason you couldn't necessarily say it- it is the longest pause. Oh, oh, Keith is vibrating out of his chair, wanting to answer this question. Because um, it doesn't. Ha- it, there's no relationship, uh, family-wise, between this Bambi and some other Bambi. Uh, no, you are incorrect. Uh, Keith, you want to take it? I do. 
It's because the action takes place within the same chronology of the first film? Correct. It is technically a mid-quill, which is apparently the term for it. Um, wow. But still, uh, longest uh, longest break between the two. All right, so we are at Scott 1, Keith 1, uh, Nathan negative 1, and now you see how this game works. Number two. On the list of longest gaps between films and their sequels, Disney movies hold most of the top five slots due to the post-return of Jafar craze for VOD sequels to decades-old classics. Which of these Disney movies is not in the top five list for longest gaps between original movies and their eventual sequels? A. Peter Pan. B. Lady and the Tramp. C. Fantasia. Or D. Cinderella. Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp, Fantasia, or Cinderella? There are only four of them, and there are three of you. I'm going to say Lady and the Tramp, because it's the most recent film. Keith is correct. Mm. Only 45 years between <laughs> Lady and the Tramp and Lady and the Tramp 2. All right, uh, Keith, you have first shot at this for the extra trivia point. Um, the Fantasia sequel was Fantasia 2000, after its year of release. For an extra point, name the sequel of any of the other three Disney movies I just mentioned. The Peter Pan one, I think I know, is it was a theatrical release. Was it Return to Neverland? Correct. Okay. Keith for the point. Dominating. <laughs> Keith pulls into the lead. Number three, there is one film in the top five longest gap that isn't a Disney movie. It's a 1959 horror movie about a scientific experiment gone wrong which produces giant, angry, mutated animals. You know, one of those. 54 years later, it got a sequel and turned up on Mystery Science Theater 3000. What is the name of that movie? A, The Killer Shrews. B, Night of the Vampire Bats. C, Weasels of Death. Or D, Tentacles. Nathan. The Killer Shrews? You are correct. Nathan pulls into... Zero points. <laughs> All right. First shot at the extra point. The sequel to The Killer Shrews came out in 2012. It sends a bunch of people back to the island of The Killer Shrews to engage in what totally cliched modern day movie framing uh, activity. Think uh, the, the most cliched reason you can possibly get a bunch of attractive people together, send them to some place they don't want to go and keep them there. Um, they have to investigate the killer shoes. Oh, you are incorrect, but that's not a negative point. Scott Tobias? Uh, plane crash? Uh, no, no. Keith? Uh, found footage? It's a reality show? It's shooting a reality show. Keith for the point. Do I get get knocked off for not getting the bonus question right? No, there's no point loss on the bonus question. Okay. (laughs) More Byzantine quiz quiz rules from Tasha Robinson. But if you wear the buzzer on your head like a hat, you get half a point per question that you get wrong. Okay. Right. Number I four. I get gemstones at the end of this, right? <laughs> you have to buy gemstones from me for a dollar per, but they'll really help you in the level. Let me promise you that. All right. Number four. Louis Bunuel's Belle de Jour, literally Beauty by Day, came out in 1967. There was a sequel in 2006, 39 years later, called What? A, Belle Alentour, meaning beauty all around. B, Belle de Cour, meaning beauty waning. C, Belle Toujours, meaning beauty always. D, Belle Bonjour, meaning hello beautiful. Or E, Belle Ouer Blanc, meaning beautiful polar bear. <laughs> Belle Alentour, Belle de Cour, Belle Toujours, Belle Bonjour. This was authorized in some way? It was authorized. It was actually by a relatively uh, well-known director, which uh, might or might not be the the extra point. Michael Bay really surprised people. (laughs) It it also played at uh, TIFF 2006. I happen to know that one Noel Murray saw it. Fascinating. 
I was going to say A, Bell, um, Bell Alator. That is not correct. Okay. All, right. All right. That's fine. You've got it narrowed down now. Just trying to make these things go faster. Belle de Cour, Belle Toujours, Belle Bonjour, Belle Our Blanc. Please say beautiful polar bear. You know you want to. Let's go with B. B, Belle, uh, Belle de Cour. That is also incorrect. Nathan, ah. it's down to two. Do you want to risk a point? I am going to guess uh, C. Uh, it is, in fact, Belle <laughs> Toujours, Beauty Always. Uh, the, for the extra point, do you know who directed that sequel? He's a, a actually a relatively well-known Portuguese director. Uh, I, I do oh, Keith. Is it Raul Ruiz? It is not. Oh. Manuel de Oliveira? Correct. Mm. Number five. Which of these Jerry Lewis comedies got an animated sequel 45 years later featuring the voice of Jerry Lewis revisiting his role from the original? <laughs> a, The Nutty Professor. <laughs> the Nutty Professor. Now, see, that's why you buzz in before all of the answers have been given. Nathan is correct. Okay, uh, Nathan, for the extra point... <laughs> The extra point is, which of the five uh, movies I just named is not actually the title of a Jerry Lewis movie? (laughs) But here, I'll go back and give them to you. A, The Nutty Professor. B, The Disorderly Orderly. C, The Delicate Delinquent. D, The Great Wooly. And E, Visit to a Small Planet. Uh, The Great Wooly. Correct. That is not. That is the name of his character from The Geisha Boy, which I did not think would fly as something that could get sequelized today. (laughs) All right. So two for Nathan. Sweet. He, uh, according to scorekeeper Genevieve, he has pulled up with Keith, and we're at what? Uh, 3-3 with Scott with one. From negative to the lead. Well, Scott, this is very clearly your question. Number six. 2015 is going to see a number of belated sequels. Star Wars The Force Awakens is a sequel to Return of the Jedi 32 years later. Mad Max Fury Road is a sequel to Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome 29 years later. Which other belated franchise-related sequel from this list is 2015 bringing? A, the Dragonheart sequel, The Sorcerer's Curse. B, the Lost Boys sequel, Lost Girl. C, the Predator sequel, Back to the Jungle. D, the Home Alone sequel, The Holiday Heist. Or E, the Train Spotting sequel, Porno. Nathan Raven. The Train Spotting uh, sequel, Porno. That is incorrect. Oh. Guys, any guesses? Dragonheart, Lost Boys, Predator, Home Alone. I was going to talk through this because I know it's not Dragonheart because this is actually the second or third Dragonheart sequel. Um, is it Home Alone or Lost Boys then it comes down to? Um, no, Lost Boys had a sequel too, so it's got to be Home Alone. It does not got to be Home Alone. It does have to be Home Alone. It does Lost not. Boys. It does not have to be that either. It is in fact, uh, it is in fact Dragonheart, where it is not technically it's Dragonheart three, the Sorcerer's Curse. So it is not a sequel to the first Dragonheart, but the second, the most recent Dragonheart is still fifteen years ago. Can I ask another question? Yes. Why are there sequels to Dragonheart? <laughs> that is an excellent question, and it's sort of the basis of this pictures. question. All right. Uh, we all lost three, and we don't even get a bonus question. You, yeah, you can have a bonus question. It's just this is going to be a buzz in, whoever wants to jump on this. Um, which of the films that I just named, uh, Lost Boys, Lost Girls, Predator, Back to the Jungle, Home Alone, The Holiday Heist, or Trainspotting Porno, did actually come out in 2012, is an actual film that happened. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna process of elimination here because um, that worked so well last pre- time. Predator was Predators, so that's not it's not that. I think it was what's 
Was it the Lost Boys sequel that actually came out? It was not. There oh, was right. there were a couple of Lost Boys uh, direct-to-video sequels, which were terrible, um, but it was not Lost Girls. It's got Tobias. This is a train spotting thing. No, that still yeah. hasn't come out. We're still waiting for it. And they're not actually going to do porno if they do a sequel. They're going to do something else. Uh, as of like less than a year ago, porno was still mm. theoretically planned, but not scheduled. This no. Is, this, by the way, is a list of films I hope never to see for the most part. But the Home Alone sequel, The Holiday Heist, does exist and what? is waiting for you out there. Oh, you know what? I think that was oh, I know. Uh, the Holiday Heist. <laughs> <laughs> 27 points for Nathan. It was a TV movie or something, wasn't it? There was. with Alex T. Lance. No, that was, a, that was Home Alone 3. All right. Question number seven. 1981's American Werewolf in London was followed 16 years later by an American Werewolf in Paris. 16 years after that, what film was scripted and greenlit but never made it to the screen? A, an American Werewolf in Berlin. B, an American Werewolf in Moscow. C, an American Werewolf in Tokyo. D, an American Werewolf in America. E, come on, Tasha, that's ridiculous. You clearly made all of those up. Scott Tobias. You made all those up. You are correct. I did, in fact, make all of those up. But I really do kind of want to see an American werewolf in Tokyo. All right, Scott Tobias, for an extra point, an American werewolf in Paris features a bunch of werewolves who have developed a serum that lets them do what thing the original American werewolf couldn't do. Mm, I don't know. This is for the tie. I know. I'm not going to do it. You're not going to do it. Uh, Anybody remember anything whatsoever about what American Werewolf in Paris was about? I vaguely remember them bungee jumping. (laughs) But I don't think that's going to be the answer. Uh, I think I know, but I I don't want to risk. He doesn't want... Well, you're not risking anything. There's no no point loss here. No, but... but, Spit it out. Maybe they wear funny hats. Control whether or not they can turn into werewolves. Correct. They can change into werewolves at any time. Okay, so that puts us at Keith at three, Nathan at two, and Scott at one. Uh, let's see how we do at the end of the lightning round. This is all buzz in. Um, I'm just going to name a film, and you're going to tell me the much, much later sequel that eventually came out. Chinatown. Nathan. The two jakes. That's a point. The Hustler. Keith. Color of Money. Color of Money is correct for the point. And from this point on, Nathan Rabin will be played by a rooster. Yes. Yes, I will. Due to Scott having beaten his barnyard buzzer into submission for some strange off-screen reason. All right. National Velvet. International Velvet. Correct. The Wicker Man. Keith? Oh, crap. I don't know it. Sorry. Anybody? All right. It's The Wicker Tree. Keith loses a point. Sorry. Easy Rider. (laughs) Easy Rider, the ride back. Well deserved. The Last Picture Show. Oh, that sounds like a three-way. You all want to just yell it? Texasville! <laughs> I'm giving it to Nathan for yelling it fastest. The Testament of Dr. Mabuse. Keith. The eyes of Dr. Mabuse. Eh, close. <laughs> How many eyes does he have? Oh, the thousand eyes of Dr. Mabuse. Correct. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And the, uh, the here's the last one. The... <laughs> Sorry about that. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, that rooster is overactive. The Maltese Falcon. I love the expression that they're it, all giving It would not right be now. the Black Biffy, although that was the, uh, the, the spoof of uh, the Maltese Falcon. No, but you're two-thirds of the way there. Darren Rowan and Johnson. The Black... The Black Bart. Correct. All right. Well, it sounded like uh, Keith ran away with that. No, Nathan ran away with that nice. on the Black Bird. We've got, uh, we've got six, five, one. 
<laughs> Scott, you you. I, I, if you've given me another couple of seconds on every single one, slow. We do need somewhere between like 25 and 63 years for the sequel. So from now on, 25 to 63 years before you have to answer each right. question. Just, yeah. just be. I, I do know that my favorite filmmaker of all time directed a sequel to The Hustler. I just want people to know that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's good enough in our books. All right, that was a hard-fought game. Congratulations. We'll see you all back here in 63 years. Great. <laughs> Hopefully everyone remembers how we do our recommendation throwdown, 30 Seconds to Sell. We give two people 30 seconds each to recommend a film or something from film-related culture. And for an added level of competition, we make them compete for recommendation glory. This week, we have Rachel Handler and Nathan Rabin facing off against each other. Rachel, you're going first. You have 30 seconds. Let's hear it. Uh, Friday in my new column, Female Stuff, shameless plug, I wrote about how the number of female directors and writers is declining. With that and this discussion in mind, I want to sell you a great movie. Well, it's more of a miniseries, but it counts. Um, it's uh, totally fantastic. It's Top of the Lake by Jane Campion, who is a complete badass. It stars Elizabeth Moss as Robin Griffin, who's a detective who's called into her hometown to investigate missing girl but who's also dealing with some major shit of her own that she left behind there it's lush and trippy and suspenseful and dark and deeply affecting and totally thrilling it's it's sort of the killing meets the piano meets twin peaks meets true detective it's available on netflix oh over time which is a foul on the other hand uh that's that's pretty exciting you just threw all of my favorite stuff in a big bag (laughs) and gave it a shake so that's gonna be that's gonna be pretty hard to beat nathan what do you have for me you have 30 seconds let's hear it Okay, um, my choice uh, is a bit of a cheat uh, since uh, there's a bit of an incestuous relationship with these people. But I would like to recommend uh, the Flop House, which is hands down the single funniest podcast in the entire world, uh, particularly the funniest uh, movie podcast. It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, it's uh, the three hosts are. Um, uh, I think it's Galen, who's a head writer of The Daily Show. Uh, Dan McCoy is a writer for The Daily Show. Stuart Wellington, uh, who is a bartender. And it is just pure joy. <laughs> pure joy. <laughs> okay, well, since you both went over time, nobody gets docked any, any points and or uh, hate points in my eyes for that one. So, uh, wow. Okay, I, you know, I'm... I'm I love the flop house and I love that those guys showed up to write about films on our site, <laughs> which is just an amazing boost for us and an amazing experience. The, the pieces they wrote about uh, taking a Pelham one, two, three were, were really exciting for me. And Jaws for. <laughs> Jaws for, that was also a really fun piece. Um, so I, I second your recommendation for the flop house, but I really have to give it to Rachel who not only Huzzah. came out of the gate swinging on her first try. We've got a we've got a thirty seconds talent here, yeah, very but also as I say, just put everything I like in a bag and give it a good shake. Uh, pandering shamelessly to the audience, as Scott yes. Tobias never never fails to point out, is absolutely a winning strategy. And congratulations, yes, no. you have won your first thirty seconds. Thank you. Thank here is the large and impressive trophy that no one but you will ever see. <laughs> I love it. Well, we've come to the end of episode 28 of the Dissolve podcast. Don't worry, you won't have to wait as long for episode 29. We just want to take a moment to thank all of the people who emailed, tweeted, commented, picketed, pounded on our limo windows while screaming, and otherwise demanded the podcast's return. We truly appreciate your support, your enthusiasm, and your loyalty. You can find the Dissolve on Tumblr, Twitter, and Facebook, and at thedissolve.com. Send questions, comments, topic suggestions, or game ideas to feedback at thedissolve.com. And this would be 
a great time to give us a boost by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, which helps raise our profile in a crowded marketplace. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin Griffith. Thanks for listening. <laughs>